Thank you so much for coming. We're really excited today to talk about insider trading. Um, and hopefully we'll focus on some, some new areas. I'm Caitlin Campbell. I'm a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery. I um, just joined in December of 2020. So I've been there a little over two years. Before that, I was at the SEC for eight years. Um, six of them I spent with my colleague here, Eric, um, in the Boston office. And then I spent two years in DC um, working for the co-directors of enforcement. Um, and when I was in Boston, I worked in the market abuse unit, which is the unit that focuses on insider trading. Everyone, good to meet those I haven't met yet. Eric Forney, I'm at DLA Piper. I was at the SEC until 2022. I started in 07. Actually, I started in 06 with Sylvester as my intern mentor, and I nonetheless decided to go to the SEC despite that. And <laughs> I spent a handful of years with Steve uh, and Sarah, who's out there uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office as a special AUSA. Let me turn to Steve to introduce himself. Uh, I'm Steve Frank, um, and I'm the chief of the uh, Securities Financial and Cyber Fraud Unit at the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, where I have worked. Uh, I started at DOJ in 2008, but I've, I've been uh, here in Boston since uh, 2012 and running the unit since whenever Sarah left, which was, when was that, Sarah? Like 2017. Um, and so uh, it's very nice to see so many familiar faces and be back at the BBA for the first time you know, four years. <laughs> Hi, uh, Sylvester Fontes, relatively new head of the uh, uh, SEC's regional office here in Boston. Started specifically on January 30th um, this year, a little over two months. And uh, since we'll get to it, um, views that I will express here today are solely my own, not the commissions or any individual commissioner or any other staff member. Um, I started at the SEC back in 1998, uh, left, uh, started off as a staff attorney, branch chief, um, trial unit member, uh, where Rothman was a member of the trial unit at the time as well, um, and worked in the market abuse unit, was the first head of the market abuse unit in Boston um, as an assistant regional director, left in 2011. Uh, worked at PwC for a couple of years doing compliance consulting work, then went on to Wellington Management, where I was a CCO of several of its entities, then went on to Bracebridge Capital, which is a uh, manager of a private funds uh, here in Boston. Uh, did that for the last uh, four years, um, CCO there before rejoining the SEC again two months ago. And um, most most importantly, I was the one who made Eric Forney what he is today because he was my he was my mentee back in was it two thousand and two or something? I'm not, I'm not sure what you're taking credit for. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Stephen Sylvester, thank you so much for coming and joining us here today. It's, it's a really great opportunity for everyone to hear about, you know, your thoughts uh, on, on insider trading. Um, we're going to start with the SEC. You know, it's a perennial focus for the SEC to, to bring insider trading cases. Um, according to the year-end report last year, nearly 10% of all of the cases um, were insider trading cases. And as I mentioned, there's a specialized unit, the market abuse unit, which Sylvester, you were inaugural member of. Um, can you tell us a little bit now that you're back at the SEC, uh, talk a little bit what has changed and what has stayed the same? Sure. I, I mean, obviously, as you say, Caitlin, insider trading is um, 
and always, I think, will be a priority. Uh, my own, again, my own views is that it's one of those areas, uh, securities and enforcement, where uh, political parties and political spectrum it all coalesce around the the idea that um, the market should be fair. And I think if you whether you're populist, whether you're leftist, people tend to agree that the markets uh, uh, that you shouldn't misuse or abuse information that others don't have. It's just like a the fair play that I think just about every um, American has in, in his or her bones. So I think it'll always be um, a priority for the for the SEC. Um, I, I was there. Uh, a little background. Um, I worked on the on the Galleon case, which was a, a big case back May down in New York. And the person who started thinking about insider trading, not the only person, but was Sanjay Wadwa, who's now uh, the the second in command in enforcement. Um, one of my one of my supervisors' colleagues, and you know, the idea was to think about insider trading cases, investigating differently. When I started in 1998. We used to think about in terms of trades, we would investigate trades rather than traders or trading rings. And I think coming out of the Galleon series of investigations, it was let's think about it like organized crime. Um, and, and, and Sanjay, not just Sanjay, but also the U.S. Attorney's Office down there in New York started thinking about it in, the, in, in that way. Um, and I don't. I think what came first was the idea of thinking about it in that way, and then the tools to help us build those cases. Given, given, given that as a premise, work it a different way. And so, the thing that's changed, that's been enhanced, are the tools. We start. We started with the tools back then, but you know, a conversation I had. Um, you know, Michelle Perillo is, is currently the head of the market abuse here in Boston. I was chatting with her in preparation for this panel. I said, okay, Michelle, I've been gone for 10, 12 years. What's changes is the tools. I mean, the tools that, that you had that we had back in 2011, it's just like night and day. So that fundamentally is, is the biggest change are the tools. But I think the, the way we thought about doing those cases started really with those series of galleon type cases back in the late 20 teens, if you will. And the tools, I think one of the things I was most impressed with when I joined the commission was the data analytics tools and the um, proprietary software that the SEC had developed in order to track trading and to identify um, the parallel trading. Um, is it, you know, now that it's easier, like I think that maybe before you had all of those great tools to quickly identify the trading just after um, an event, there's an MA gets announced, it takes uh, the market abuse unit about three days to be able to say, yeah. okay, here's all the people that trade in that, in that event. Now that that's like the SEC publicizes that a lot when they bring new cases, do you think that's going to eventually have a deterrent effect on people? Because it's not like, oh, I can make this trade. No one's ever going to notice. I'm one of you know thousands. Of well, the, the way you've asked that question raises a lot of philosophical questions in my mind about human nature. Right. Uh, I've got a quote from you for you. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. That's Madison, Federalist number 51, right? So no, there's never going to be a perfect deterrence. Um, you'd like to think that there's a, a, a dent 
placed in it. And I'm sure there are some people who are deterred by it, but you're never going to get a person, uh, you know, perfect either general or individual deterrence because of the twin, the twin uh, drivers, right, of human behavior in this area. It's either greed, want to make a lot of money, or fear, want to avoid losing a lot of money. And as long as those twin emotions or right human drives exist, and you're never going to put an end to insider trading. That's my philosophical take on it. Yeah. So, Steve, I think your office does insider trading cases occasionally. You, you just had a big win in the case of a name I can't pronounce, but um, <laughs> I think most people are aware of it out there. Do you plan to do more insider trading? And maybe you can flesh it out. What types? Domestic, international, one-off, in referrals, broader-based, complex insider trading. How do you plan to focus your resources? I mean, we're not picky. We we go where the crime grows. So, um, you know, I think I agree with Sylvester. These are sort of... Um, it's a crime that doesn't seem to go away. Um, I think it is evolving. I mean, we we still do the one-off insider trading cases. The um, the you know the the guy who finds a piece, out a piece of information and tips his buddy or trades on it himself. Those those um, continue to happen, and we continue to to charge those cases. But I think what we're seeing more and more is um, that these are um, rings and organized enterprises that. Um, that cross jurisdictions and cross borders. And I think the Cleushan case um, was an example of that. That was more of a, it was a hack to trade case as opposed to a traditional insider trading case, but it was massive in scope, over $90 million in profits. It was um, organized. It was, it was literally a business um, and it was incredibly uh, sophisticated in terms of the, the hacking techniques that they use, but we're also investigating um, large international rings that are more traditional insider trading rings, um, and and that also um, you know cross international boundaries. I, I think, I mean, I I agree, um, you know, with Sylvester. And one of the things that we utilized in in prosecuting that Cleushan case was the SEC's um, tremendous data analytics resources just even after the fact in in sort of digesting um the trading information and um being able to translate it for a jury we had we had an sec um uh, financial economist come in and testify um about the nature of the trading and the and the profits and it was really really powerful um you know devastating testimony um but i think the other thing to keep in mind is that the traders are also becoming more sophisticated. The targets are becoming more sophisticated. And so some of the traditional techniques, the organized crime techniques, like getting up on a wire on the criminal side that we used to be able to do and still like to do where we can, they're less effective nowadays because they're no longer talking. They're smart enough not to talk on the phone. Um, and so they're using, uh, they're either uh, meeting in person uh, or they're they're using encrypted apps, which, you know, we can talk more about that, but they're, you know, they're not impossible to, to um, to get a hold of, but they're much, much harder. So I think we'll come back to the encrypted apps later. And I think it kind of goes along with the next point, which is the circumstantial nature of the evidence. If you don't have the, the wiretap or you don't have the cooperating witness, there's ways to put these cases together, but it's all timing. And I think that the defense bar was very shocked and everyone was shocked in the SECB Clark case that was out of the Eastern District of Virginia where mid-trial, the judge said, no, this isn't enough. Um, you know, that, he said that he didn't find anything suspicious about the timing and the manner of Clark's trades or his communications 
with his brother-in-law who did the trading. He was an insider. The brother-in-law made very timely trades and like of, you know, like basically his whole account or you know, something like that. And, uh, and so, but then the fourth circuit overturned that. And so, but it kind of did ask a question to both of you, you know, did that give you any pause or do you support, you know, continuing to bring the types of cases where there's no concrete evidence that the inside information changed hands? Yeah, I, I would like to think that that district court opinion was an aberration. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of facts about the Clark case that you did not have in your summary, which um, which I suspect led the SEC to uh, to to bring charges. One is that the brother-in-law, the tipper, he also minimized or lied about the number of communications he had had with the defendants to pee in his interview with FINRA. So he lied to FINRA. Uh, the defendant and the son admitted a trial that they had lied to the FBI uh, about whether they had discussed the trading before placing the trades. So right off the bat, that, that's suspicious facts. Um, uh, I think in a lot of ways, the SEC and, and perhaps less so the uh, the Justice Department, because um, they have a higher evidentiary burden. I think we kind of um, were victims in a lot of ways of our own successes because of cases such as Galleon and its progeny, where the evidentiary bar, one could argue, was set so high because we had things such as, you know, recordings, tape recordings, whether they be uh, via search warrants or one party consent state um, recordings, et cetera. We had really excellent case uh, evidence in those kinds of cases. And it almost became, I, I, I ask it as a question, something that I thought about. I don't, I don't have a definitive answer to it, but I, I often wonder whether that caused even the staff within the SEC to pull back and to say, well, wait a second, we had some losses, some jury trial verdicts that went against us. So the combination of some bad decisions at the, at the before juries and also the fact that you're measuring the evidence in, in the Galleon cases with their run-of-the-mill, you know, uh, in, in a circumstantial evidence case, I, I think there may have been some pause saying, well, should we be doing those cases? And I go on to speculate, pure speculation, where some of that seeped out, you know, into the bar or maybe even judges being affected by the hard evidence that they are seeing, hard or stronger evidence that they're seeing in some of the cases we bring. But... Uh, Again, the, the type of evidence that you have in Clark, when again, going back to the last millennium when I started the SEC, was typical of the sorts of circumstantial evidence cases that we bring and that I think are, are legitimate cases to, to bring. Um, I mean, I'll, just a, the one quote from Clark that stood out, I think, suffices because I think it states it plainly and I, I completely agree with it. Because a defendant or interested party rarely makes a statement or reveals information that amounts to direct evidence of impermissible trading based on confidential insider information, the commission may present circumstantial evidence to meet its burden of proof, citing Dirks. So that's not and that's not a not novel, a new case. Circumstance, and this, I love this sentence, circumstantial evidence, if it meets all the other criteria of admissibility, is not only sufficient, but may also be more certain satisfying and persuasive than direct evidence. 
So I think that's brilliantly put, and it cites cases. So it's not as if there's no, the judges just made this Fourth Circuit is making up as it goes along. So bottom line to answer your question is, the Boston Regional Office and Enforcement will continue to recommend such cases. I think within the last two weeks, we well on something where it was primarily circumstantial. But whether it's direct circumstantial uh, or a combination of the two, we will follow the rules of evidence, right? And, and you know, we all know, I think they're murder cases. That are there's just a high-profile murder case, but most of the evidence is circumstantial. And it's good enough for murder cases. I think it's good enough for insider trading cases. I mean, I agree with that. I, I think, um, you know, we've we've gotten spoiled by cases where you have a cooperating witness or you have some smoking gun evidence. And so, um, uh, but the reality is, you know, um, you know, juries don't always love cooperating witnesses anyway. And, and I agree with Sylvester that sometimes it's the really powerful circumstantial evidence um, that can be most, that can resonate most with a jury. You know, um, is this a, huge bet that a person made that look, you know, uh, did they, did they put their life savings in this stock? Did they, did they liquidate everything else in order to move it into one particular stock? Was it a particularly risky stock? Was it a, were they trading options? Were they shorting or doing something unusual? Was it timed? You know, did they have access to the information? Did they have access to a person who had the information? Were there timely communications? When you start to put those things together, they can add up um, to pretty powerful evidence. You know, did they lie to the FBI? Did they lie to the SEC? Did they lie to FINRA? In some of the cases that we've done in years past, it was those lies to FINRA. You know, we always get frustrated because FINRA goes over it right away and they they send a letter to the company and they say, uh, you know, please circulate this letter and ask anyone if they know any of these people on this list. And it's like, you know, from a criminal standpoint, that can be frustrating, right? Because there's no opportunity to do anything at that point that's proactive. On the other hand, People are remarkably stupid sometimes. And so, you know, they'll they'll just lie about knowing somebody on the list and and uh, or they'll give some false explanation. And so that can be really powerful evidence. And that's worked to our advantage in a couple of cases. Or they immediately quit their job. I've I've heard of that happening before. Or, you know, in that case, also, you're referring to the to the Bray case. But like, you know, in 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 um, in that case, um, there were also, um, you know, we didn't have a Title III, but we had recorded calls with E-Trade, where the guy who traded, you know, did all of those things. He cornered the market on options in the particular stock, and he liquidated other stocks to get into those options. And it was an unusual stock that he was trading in. Um, and then he called up E-Trade, and he didn't even really know how to trade options, right? And so you have this desperate call where he's like, I, I can't use my online thing, but literally my online thing. Uh, but but um, but I'd like to you know I know this sounds crazy but I'd like to buy these options right well that's gold that from an evidentiary standpoint so all of those kinds of things I think can add up to pretty powerful evidence and we won't hesitate to bring those cases and the other thing I would I would say about that is you know once in a while we will lose a case like that um, but I don't think uh, we can be afraid to bring those cases because they are important cases and and um, you know. Um, for every one of these crimes that we catch and that we end up charging, um, there are so many more that that go undiscovered or or not charged because there's not enough evidence. And so I think it's really important to continue pursuing these cases. So let's pick up on the evidence part. So you, you would talk, and I'll, I'll present this to Sylvester as well. You talked about communications and how things are evolving. When I started at the SEC 16 years ago, hard to believe, I would still send a bunch of subpoenas 
this is probably Sylvester's fault. We can blame this on Sylvester. I was sending out subpoenas for landline records of potentially instead of traders to see if they were calling somebody else to make a tip or receive information. And consequently, I brought zero insider trading cases. Um, so times have changed. I don't think landline records are the goldmine of you know potential sources of information. What are we doing now on your end in terms of you know encrypted apps, other forms of communication? How are you detecting that? How do you gather it? You can share with your evidentiary approach. Maybe Sylvester, maybe Steve, you could start and then we'll go back to Sylvester. I mean, I don't want to talk about all the particular techniques that we use, but but I, and I will say, um, encrypted apps are a lot harder than uh, traditional. Um, well, people have not used landlines for a very long time, but um, but uh, cell phones, right? It, they're harder. It's not to say that people don't use cell phones. People do use cell phones, and you know, we've had Title Threes on cell phones where people say, um, you know, they 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 start talking about stocks. And then they'll say, okay, let's take this conversation over to the app, right? Or yeah. code for the app. And, you know, that's pretty good evidence too. Um, it's not as good as having the actual incriminating conversation on tape, but it's, but it's pretty good evidence. What I'll say about encrypted apps is um, so far we don't, uh, we have not done, I, I don't know that it's impossible, but we have not in our office done a Title III um, real-time collection on an encrypted app, but uh, which is not to say that it's impossible. Um, but there are ways of getting uh, the substance of encrypted communications, um, even when, and, and we did actually, we did some of that in the Cleution case where they thought uh, that their uh, communications were protected and it turned out they weren't as safe as they thought they were. So, um, and the good thing about that is once you do get those communications, they tend to be very blunt and, um, you know, very obvious. Um, so, so uh, we do get some of that, you know, also um, criminals are only as, um, as good as their weakest link. And so if you flip somebody, um, you get them to intercept, you know, to record those communications or to, to have incriminating conversations with, with their co-conspirators, that remains um, very powerful evidence. And, you know, a lot of times we don't catch the co-conspirators necessarily for the thing that we ended up charging, right? It doesn't have to be that we catch the co-conspirator for insider trading for them to lead us to an insider trading case where they gather evidence. You know, the, the Varsity Blues case was a massive case that came from a totally unrelated securities fraud scheme involving a pump and dump. And similarly, the reverse can also happen, right? So. Um, so there's other forms of evidence that we can gather besides um, the traditional T3 of a, of a landline or a mobile line. Um, but I, I would also say that, you know, encrypted apps are not totally impenetrable. I mean, and the thing a lot, and Sylvester, you should jump in, but just from my experience, the, the reality is at the end of the day, you have to make the trades and the money has to flow to the beneficiary of the trades. So the asset tracing to me is one way to identify this, even if you don't have the communication, you can connect the dots there as well. So, so what do you think from the SEC's perspective? No, I, I think it's, uh, it, from, from where I sit, it's a frustrating area, right? Because of ECPA exists, right? And the, those who are not familiar, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, I mean, it, there's cer certain limited amount of information that the SEC can, can obtain um, given that act. But I think this, you know, Steve earlier said about how the SEC has some very strong tools that we, we we helped him out on, on, on his recent criminal prosecution. Um, but likewise, this is an area I think we're, we're most dependent on the, on the criminal uh, authorities because you know, they can see some of the stuff via search warrants and we don't, we don't have the ability to, to, to obtain search warrants. So 
uh, it is an area where where we most feel the, the need, the desire to work with the criminal authorities. Yeah, it's a challenge. Which you are right that you still, I mean, um, there still has to be a trade, right? And and that often is the most powerful evidence. It is sometimes harder than it used to be to trace the flow of funds, right? Because of, um, you know, cryptocurrency and, and but even that, um, there are ways of getting at that as well. And And then when you see somebody using cryptocurrency to pay somebody off, right? Then that becomes powerful evidence in and of itself. So let's let's shift gears a little bit from sort of the priorities and the investigative approach to the new change in rules and see how that kind of might affect insider trading investigations going forward. So as many of you are aware, there was amendments to the 1051 rules in December of 2022, and then there was related amendments to disclosure obligations by public companies. And so I'll give a very brief overview to the 1051 amendments. You can read about them. There's exciting as I'll make them sound, which is not very. Uh, Caitlin will talk about the new disclosure related amendments. Big picture, I think the biggest takeaway on the 10B51 amendments is there's now a cooling off period from the time in which someone adopts a 10B51 plan to the time in which they can actually execute on that plan. And there's different ways to test it, but it's at least 90 days from the date of adoption or two days after earnings are released as part of a 10Q and 10K. And importantly, it is after a Q and a K. So for if, if you have for those of you in private practice, you have life sciences companies that will issue pre-earnings before the JP Morgan conference, for example. You can't time it two days after the JP Morgan earnings news. It has to be after Q or K. The SEC was explicit about that. And that's important because we'll talk about it in a moment. There was significant concern within the SEC at a minimum. And Steve may talk about the DOJ as well as a prosecution that just came out a couple of weeks ago, where there was a focus on using 10B51 plans as a pretext, basically using them, adopting plans under the guise of a affirmative defense knowing you have inside information, and then immediately executing on those plans. So of all the rule amendments, the priority for the SEC was this cooling off period. I'll turn to Caitlin to talk about some of the new disclosure obligations. So, yeah, so in addition to, to the 10B51 plan, they had disclosures for issuers. So now uh, issuer has to say whether or not they have an insider trading plan, and if they do, they need to attach it to the 10K. Um, they also have to provide quarterly disclosures about whether any officer or director has adopted, modified, or terminated its 10B51 plan, or if it has a non-rule 10B51 um, trading arrangement. Um, and they have to provide a description of the material terms of each of the plans. Um, also, the issuers are required to disclose on Form 10K or their annual proxy statement, their policies and procedures regarding the timing of its options awards in relation to material non-public information. There's a lot of new requirements uh, on issuers it could be kind of burdensome. So, Sebastian, let me let me turn it to you. So, you know, generally in my experience at the SEC, when there was a new rule passed, the emphasis was on enforcement to then bring some cases to demonstrate the rule actually mattered. Do you anticipate? a focus of priorities on 10B51 abuses. And, you know, as part of that, if you can talk about it, how do you navigate the fact that many of these plans are likely going to be overseen by general counsel, outside counsel, sort of an inherent advice of counsel, presence of counsel, you name it, defense. How do you how do you plan to deal with that? And what sorts of resources do you plan to dedicate? Well, it, it's new. And again, just to put on the record again, two months on the job, but this is the way I think about it. Um, I think about it in terms of it's just in in a sense it's new, but it's but it's not in the sense that 
in any insider trading investigation, um, you know there are going to be defenses. <laughs> the defenses are the obvious. Uh, the info is not material. It was not non-public. You know, I didn't have C enter. Blah, blah, blah. There, this is, it's just another defense. If anything, it's a defense that's been weakened by the amendments, right? So my natural thought on this is it's like, you had a defense that was stronger. The shield has been whittled down, has been made thinner now. Um, and therefore, uh, it's going to be less available to you. And therefore, we're probably going to be able to make more cases on the question of whether or not someone is trying to, um, you know, re rely on defense of counsel. That, that, that is often an issue that we need to deal with. Someone asserts that I... Yeah. And the 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 the, the, uh, the one that's the most frustrating is like, are you claiming it or are you not claiming? It? Are you claiming? Uh, well, we talked to Castle. Are you claiming it? No, I'm not claiming it. It's just like, okay, uh, can we stop at the song and dance? So, but the bottom line is that that's always an issue, uh, and, and we have to we have to deal with it. But it, I, I suspect, like with all, um, it, there's always been a good faith element in the in the affirmative defense. If you don't if you don't have good faith in in um, in devising the plan, then the defense is not available to you. That that's always been the case. Um, so I, I, I guess I guess my bottom line is I don't I don't think I, I'm with you, Eric. Yes, uh, it would be it would be great to find a case to send the message because that's what the business we're in. I'm, you know, that's no, that's not giving away any state secrets. We're always looking for novel first cases. We brag about them in our press releases. It would be great to find such a case, but I don't view it as, um, it's not a stronger defense now. So it, it, it cuts our way, if you will, is how I view it. Okay, and one, and one thing I'm saying. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to ask you a question. Sure. So we've got these new disclosure rules. We've got you know requirements that the trading by officers and directors get get tracked. How would you advise a GC on um, putting into place the policies and procedures to monitor the trading under these plans? Well, you know, I think there's not a necessarily a one size fits all approach. But one of the things that's interesting about the SEC's rules that what you talk about the disclosure obligations. Mm -hmm is it's not just an obligation to disclose instead of trading policies, but the obligations to disclose the procedures as well. And notwithstanding a 100, 200 some odd page adopting release, there's no definition as to what procedures means in the release. So I've had many clients ask me, well, what does that mean? Does it literally mean all the emails we send with the blackout period? Is that a procedure? Like, well, how do you define it? And I, we'll see. We'll see if Sylvester has ideas on that. But, but I think at a minimum, I think it's probably best practice to have something built into your policy as a procedure designed to basically pre-approve a pre-clear 10B51 trading plan to monitor trading so that you can both know what's happening and also promptly file your section 16 reports that would be incumbent upon a section 16 officer and director who has a plan. One of the other challenges is should everyone in your company be able to adopt a plan? Should it just, should it just be the officers and directors? I think it, that really depends on company size and dynamics and the like. It, the SEC has this cooling off period I referenced to be clear. It applies to officers and directors. It doesn't apply to employees. My view is Probably best practice to apply it across the board. You don't have some employee who's not technically a Section 16 officer entering a plan and immediately trading. It's not a good luck. And that's the sort of thing if I was in Sylvester and Steve's shoes, I would seize upon pretty quickly. Um, so maybe, Steve, turning back to you, there was a case filed by DOJ recently, 10 51 
Uh, I think it's the first of its kind. Do you see that being a trend or is that a one-off thing sort of Sylvester's point where if you see it, you'll bring it, but it's not necessarily going to be a main priority going forward. I think it's more of that. I mean, that was a, that was an incredible case. That was a, a guy, this is the Pizer case in California. This, this guy was a former Michael Milken associate, literally, I think sat at his right hand. So um, he had a background. Um, and then that's character evidence. It's he's, it is inadmissible that we'd figure out a way. But anyway, um, uh, he's the um, he's the you know CEO of this healthcare company. He's sold a total of he's told, sold stock twice over fifteen years for a total of three hundred thousand dollars. All of a sudden, he's calling around to brokerage firms, desperate to put in place a ten B five one plan. The first firm tells him. We have a cooling off period. You know, at that point, it wasn't required. It was the firm's policy. He was like, no, thanks. Calls the next firm. They say, we don't have a required uh, cooling off period, but we strongly recommend it. He, he said, thanks for the advice. I'd like to sell now. <laughs> um, literally sells the next day, avoids something like 12 or $15 million in loss. Um, I mean, it was just a very sexy set of facts. And um, if you're a securities lawyer. and um, uh, <laughs> So, you know, I think that case we would take. I think given that there are now rules in place, we're not likely to see that case again, or at least not on not on those precise set of facts. So what about a circumstance? And we're going to get a little later on today about we're going to get into different charging options, not just classic 10B. We'll get to that, I think, in a few moments. But before we get there, what about the scenario where somebody has misrepresented whether they have MNPI when they enter the plan? but actually wait until they trade. So by the time they trade, the information they have is actually public. So there's no insider trading. There's arguably some lie to the broker or even to the employer about whether they have MMPI. Do you view that as a separate basis to bring charges? Potentially. Those are very hard cases. We had uh, uh, we looked into situations where some version of that occurred and we haven't brought a case um, uh, to date, I would say, I mean, first of all, the whole idea of a 10B51 plan is that, and I, I sort of don't understand the rule for, the, for this reason, the whole idea of it is that this is for people who are constantly in possession of MNPI. So right. the very notion of certifying that you're not in possession of MNPI at the time that you're entering into the plan is sort of a contradiction uh, because these people, you know, if you're the CEO, if you're the CFO, you've always got uh, material non-public information. But certainly that would be one data point in, in assessing whether to bring a case. I think the really hard part and the, the part that we've struggled with and talked to the SEC about um, is, you know, if you're entering into the 10B51 plan um, uh, at a point where you have material non-public information, but you're not selling the stock until later when the material non-public information is no longer non-public, right? Then you know, is that uh, in connection with the purchase and sale? You know, is the fraud in connection with the purchase and sale of the security? I think there's a strong argument that it is because the whole reason for entering into the 10B51 plan is to enable you to take advantage of what is at that moment material non-public information by selling the stock at some later point. Um, but that would have to be litigated. That's a that's a uh, potential issue. And then there's the other issue, which is that when you are actually engaging in the securities transaction. The material is no longer non-public, and so um, is that really insider trading at that point? Now that said, I would not, you know, if 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 I were the GC of a company, I would not be recommending that uh, or advising the GC. I wouldn't I wouldn't be recommending that people engage in those kinds of transactions. But um, you know, the other point is when when you when you bring up this advice of counsel situation, often the, in those situations, the GC is also entering into a ten B five one plan. 
Um, and so you have that issue as well. So uh, there may also be other ways of prosecuting egregious facts like that um, that are not, um, you know, Title 15 traditional uh, securities fraud, right? We, we could potentially go after that if it's really bad on a wire fraud or an honest services fraud theory. Um, but so far, we just haven't seen um, the perfect set of facts. And I, I would say, I think with the cooling off period now, it's it's less likely that we'll see something as egregious as what we saw in the California case. And it's hard, as you said, like CEOs and CFOs are rarely not in possession of this information. Are you saying, or should they constantly be in fear about their trading? Like there has to be a way for them to be able to enter into some kind of plan to, to, to sell stock. Right. And I think, so that's the reason why, you know, it, it would have to be a situation where they're entering into the plan and then executing the trade as quickly thereafter as they possibly can. But now that there's this cooling off period, I don't, I don't see how it's, it would have to be a pretty unique set of facts. Sure, yeah. So shadow trading. Uh, a little over a year ago, I think it was, uh, the SEC brought a case against Matthew Paniwat, who was a senior director of business development at a mid-sized biopharmaceutical company. And he working on a deal. He um, bought short-term stock options in a competing company. Um, and the alleged inside information was that competitors and thinking that when this deal got announced, the competitor's stock prices would also go up. He purchased um, these uh, short-term stock options. Um, and he his trades um, generated profits of a little over $100,000. Um, it's the first time that the SEC had tried to extend the misappropriations theory of insider trading to the trading's um, insecurities of one company while in possession of material non-public information about a different company. Um, it, but it, the case did survive a motion to dismiss. Um, and what the court focused on in terms of the breach of duty was that it was the language in the employer's insider trading policy that said was very broad and prohibited trading in the securities of another publicly traded company, including all significant collaborators, customers, partners, suppliers, or competitors. From the court found that the word including didn't limit the policy's applicability to only the types of companies listed, but was illustrative of the types of companies that it covered. Um, so, um, Given the the you know that this is new and novel, do we think that this is a trend? Are we going to see more cases like this? Don't know. Um, what I can tell you is, um, you know, when the, when the case came out a uh, year and a half ago or so, I was a CCO um, at a hedge fund, and it certainly caught our attention in that of. Um, our investment pros. And we had a, we, you know, we took a long, hard look at our policies, procedures, did a lot of training around it. And even though I think that we were fine um, after the, you know, I don't think I'm violating any confidentiality, my former employer, but I think, I think, I don't think there's anything um, significant what I'm about to say, but after we did the training sessions on Panawat, 
we certainly got more inquiries and compliance on this question, um, which is what you want to see after you do compliance training. So um, it, it certainly focused the mind. I don't know how much of this, I just don't know how much of this um, shadow trading is happening out there. Uh, so it's hard to say. Um, you know, we, we can talk about the, the duty issue uh, whenever you want, but I, I think it's also important to put on the record that the SEC, I know you, you, talk, you talked about how the judge focused on the, the fact that the agreement, um, or that the policies that he that signed was broad, the language in it was broad, but it, it's also worth noting that the SEC in the complaint alleged duty, the breach of duty based solely as well on the employment relationship, which raises the question of whether that um, the duty is, is broader, right? Uh, we've got 10B52, which lays out the three, you know, subsections on when um, a duty of trust or confidence exists. But I think very important is to note that the preliminary notes to 10B52 notes that it's a non-exclusive list of circumstances where a duty may exist. And so I think we're probably in common law land at this at this point. So I don't think that if there is, if there, I, I, I'm not, I'm open to the idea. I, and I think 10B52 suggests that even if you don't have an explicit agreement as you had in Panawatt, I don't think that would preclude us from investigating such cases. Like a different insider trading policy, like going out and like cutting that provision from, from your insider trading policies is not necessarily going to save you. I'm, I'm, I'm saying if you believe what 10B52 says, mm -hmm. that it's a non-exclusive list of instances where a duty exists, one is explicit. If you explicitly agree to keep a confidential or in Panawatt's case, he explicitly agreed not to trade on the securities of any public company, explicitly agreed to that. But 10B52 suggests, not suggests, it states that it's a non-exclusive list. And the SEC pled it that way. And the court in its denial of the motion to dismiss recognized that the SEC had pled it that way in a footnote. So I'm saying, you know, stay tuned. But I don't think I don't think uh, anyone is suggesting that we are limited by the the facts in Panama. I just see. Do you, what do you <laughs> what do you what do you think? How's that for a reversal? <laughs> um, what's next? I, you know, I think. I, the facts in Panama were particularly good. I mean, the guy was, uh, uh, you know, an insider at a company that was one of two mid-sized oncology companies in that particular segment of the oncology market. And he found out that his company was being acquired. And within one hour of getting that information, demonstrably getting that information, within one hour, he's loading up on call options on the one other company that is in that same segment of the market. Um, that was still independent. So, uh, and there was that uh, provision of the company's insider trading policy. I was to point out the facts I gloss over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that was an unusually good set of facts. I, do I think it's a lot of this shadow trading is happening? Yes. And um, the reason I think that is because I read an article that said it. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a there was a ProPublica uh, investigation. I think within the last few weeks, um, basically suggesting that there is there. You know, if you if you look at 
the statistics of um, of insider buying of, of buying and selling of competitor companies by insiders, senior executives. Um, there's a ton of it um, going on, and so you know I, I think now that we're aware of it, um, we're going to be you know working with the SEC to, to, to in parallel to um, to to look for it and and identify other sort of good cases. I think. The difficulty of these cases is not just what does the policy say, but also how egregious is it and where is the limiting principle, right? So if you're an insider at a plastics company, right, and you know that you're having a lousy quarter, right, and you're going to report lousy earnings results, and you then short other plastics companies, um, is that is that good enough, right? Or is it does it matter why you're having is it that you're having a lousy quarter because of tariffs or you're having a lousy quarter because of a general economic slowdown or because of something unique to your company? And how translatable is that to a different company in the same sector? And how, you know, does it have to be a certain degree of closeness and to, to explain that to a jury, why that's in fact insider trading? On the flip side of that, if you just use common sense, right, um, would it matter to a reasonable investor in that sector of the market to know the information that you have about your particular company when deciding how to invest in other particular companies. And I think if the answer to that is yes, then you've got a pretty good argument that that is in fact insider trading if you're using that information to, um, to you know, to, as a basis for your trades. So um, I, I think that's a long way of saying it. I think there will be more of those cases. They may not all have facts quite as good as Panawat. And again, there may be some cases that we end up losing, but I think we're going to be looking at it because I think it is going on. And I think my gut reaction is it's it's it should not be it, it should not be happening. It shouldn't be allowed. So I will transition to what we've alluded to earlier, which is other charging options. So we'll leave some time for questions too. It looks like we have about 12 minutes left. So, you know, traditionally instead of trading charge under Title 15, as Steve said, which is 10B of the Exchange Act, rule 10B5. But there's other ways to charge instead of trading as we've seen. LASIK is a case out of Southern, which is a case that demonstrates, I think it's 1343 wire fraud, traditional wire fraud, and 1348, which is securities fraud under Title 18. So Steve, maybe you can walk us through your thoughts on those charging options and whether, in particular, the concurring opinion in LASIK, which called in the question whether you can have a different standard of proof for wire fraud than securities fraud is relevant to your factors. Factoring in. Sure. So just as a just as a background, um, you know, traditionally insider trading cases were charged under Title 15 under the broad uh, securities fraud um, provisions of, of Title 15. Um, and um, and then about 20 years ago, which which is recent in, in criminal law terms, but it's now been on the books for 20 years, um, Congress passed uh, Section 1348 of Title 18. Which basically was an um, uh, a copycat statute that uh, that uh, sort of took Section 1343, Section 1341, the wire fraud, the broad wire fraud and mail fraud um, statutes, and uh, applied them to a securities fraud context. And basically, a, a broad um, fraud statute um, uh, covering securities fraud. And the idea, one of the ideas of that was to make it, as, and, and as the Blazak Court um, made clear, was to make it, um, to have a very broad securities fraud statute to make it easier for prosecutors to bring um, securities fraud cases. So it is not a specific, it is not a statute that is specifically targeted at insider trading, just like 1578 JB is not a, a statute specifically targeted at insider trading. 
Um, but the reason that prosecutors have started turning toward to it more recently is because there has been so much um, judge-developed law around insider trading in the Title 15 uh, context, you know, with Newman and then undoing Newman with Salmon um, and, and just all of the complications that have arisen and cl- conflicting opinions um, that jury instructions under Title 15 for insider trading are pretty complicated. Whereas now you have Section 1348, and Section 1348 is a traditional, you know, is there fraud, basically, uh, connected to a security, and that's pretty much it. And what the Blazak Court said was all of that um, Title 15 law that's developed around insider trading doesn't really, you know, the, the, the need for a benefit, um, a personal benefit, that doesn't apply in a Section 1348 context. So that's why people want to bring or are increasingly turning to Section 1348. What the concurrence said um, in, in, the, in the second Blazak case was that this creates a sort of an anomaly because you now have a situation where you guys at the SEC, um, formerly you guys at the SEC, um, uh, you know, are, are, are only able to bring an insider trading case under Title 15, where you have that personal benefit requirement, whereas those of us at DOJ have the option of bringing the case under Section 1348, where we arguably, even though we have the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, we don't now have uh, the strictures of Title 15 and maybe uh, thus have an, have an easier time bringing the case. And the concurrence was suggesting that this is not really fair uh, and can create a weird situation where it's easier to bring the criminal case than it is to bring the civil case. I think that's maybe a little bit overstated. Uh, because I think the reality is, first of all, the personal benefit requirement post salmon is not all that, right? You're basically to a, a Dirk's standard of, you know, a, a gift to a trading relative or friend. And so that's just not that, that's not that heavy a lift. And the reality is that DOJ is not going to be bringing too many insider trading cases where the SEC isn't also uh, bringing a, a parallel insider trading case. And so the facts are going to be you're going to probably be able to satisfy either standard. We are using Section 1348 more as an analog to Title 15. And just, you know, if it's a case that's going to go to trial, we'd rather have both theories on the table, give a jury both options. If they get confused by the Title 15 standard, they have Section 1348. Um, but it's a it's going to be a pretty rare case where we're relying on Section 1348 all by itself. And Sebastian, turning to you in terms of alternative charging decisions, obviously with the SEC, you just have 10B, 10B5 for a case involving sales. You would also have 17A. But what about non-traditional insider trading, particularly under the new rules, violations of 10B51 trading plans, Reg SK disclosure requirements, use of Reg FD potentially? Can you talk a little bit about other considerations you're giving to insider trading-like offenses? Yeah, look... uh at the end, this is this is my own approach to investigations. Is every potential charge is just another uh, you know, um, arrow on the quiver? I believe is the phrase. I mean, you 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 decide what is the what what is the conduct before you, and then you decide what what are the tools available to tackle the the conduct if you think it's uh, uh, you know inconsistent with the with the SEC's mission. So that's how I think I tend to think about it. I don't, I don't think about it in uh, other than, other than that. And we, we, we certainly with reg FD, you know, so in the outline, one of the, one of the questions you had is how do you think about reg FD 
Uh, by the way, a historical footnote point, I actually opened up the first uh, Reg FD investigation within the SEC staff back in 2002. But the case ended up in New York. So that's a story for another day. I still haven't gotten over it. It ended up in the Motorola 21A report. But uh, in any event, um, you know, is, is that a backup? Well, it depends on what the facts are, right? I mean, if the, if the company, um, if there was an unintentional disclosure of information, or even if it was intentional, but... Um, but um, uh, but there was no benefit, right? Then you that you obviously must look at Reg FD, right? Conversely, if uh, if you've got an officer who is doing it because he or she is uh, uh, he or she is getting a personal benefit, then you you look at insider trading. I think at the beginning of an investigation, you certainly don't know where it's going to go. It could be both charges are available if you've got different streams. You've got the same information, but one is being legitimately communicated uh, to 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 the street, but 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 the company oversteps the mark uh, unintentionally. You could have a Reg FD violation, or uh, conversely, you've got someone else within the company who you know goes off on his or her own for, for seeking a personal benefit. So it all depends. I, I I don't I don't view it as anything other than that. With respect to the new rules. Uh, reg SK disclosure. Um, I mean, there's no requirement that you have a, a policy, but you've got to have disclosures around that. Um, to, to me, my, my read of it is that you just got to be accurate in how you describe your policies, whether you have it, you don't have it, considerations in, in adopting it or not adopting it. So in that sense, it's it's not it's not anything new to us. It's just whether or not the disclosure meets the requirements or not. Is it robust enough, materially misleading? Let me ask you a question about that. And I realize you may not be able to answer, but I'll ask anyway. Is there any internal benchmarking the SEC on what a reasonable policy should look like versus one that's unreasonable on its face? Yeah, my own views. Sure. So what, sure. one of your... <laughs> I want to ask it this way, because uh, yeah, I think uh, you may have said in one of the prep, the prep session we had for this is like one of the questions, I'll turn it back to you, is like, how broad do you have it? Like going back to the um, going back to the Panama discussion, do you, do you prohibit your corporate officials from uh, from trading, uh, have them agree not to trade in the public companies of competitors or peers, however you phrase it? Uh, I guess I would turn the question back and say, in Panama itself, the company had such a policy. The company was not charged, right? So to the extent that corporate policies are designed to protect corporations, companies, why would you not have such a policy, right? So the whole point of policies are not to protect individuals, but rather to protect the company. I would also ask the question, if you believe that uh, an employee by definition, as common law type duties and anything and everything that an employee learns during the course of his or her employment with a company, that that is the company's proprietary information. I would ask the question simply, why would you want to waive the right to that information that is yours? Just going back to restatement of agency principles, whatever, Blackstone's commentaries on agency. Why, why would you, the only other context I can, run. right? No, the only, the only other time I can see I can see like uh, where companies give up such common law rights, right? Is when you enter into contracts, right? 
And why is that? Because you get a benefit out of it when you offer an employee a, a contract and you say, I, I give up your right, my right to fire you at will. It's in your interest to that. How is it in the company's interest to give up that? It's, it's confidential proprietary info. That's, that's how I at least am starting to think about it in this area. 